Hello listeners and welcome to the show. This is Sam Abrika, the CEO of Nova Money, an AI financial planner designed to help you build financial freedom. In this episode, we will talk about trading, risk-taking and what's going on in the crypto world with Dr. Clement Chiang, founder of the Bitcoin Institute. As a disclaimer, when you listen to experienced traders, they will likely make it sound easy. But I've spent years on the trading floors and guarantee that very few can become successful traders. That's why I recommend long-term investing to trading to 99% of people. However, Clement is part of the 1% who managed to live and breathe at the fast and furious beat of the volatile market. He's a veteran trader who self-learned the secrets of the market and became a millionaire by the age of 30. He's now the founder and CEO of Spiking, a social trading platform providing market information about publicly listed companies. Dr. Clement Chiang, we're so happy to have you today in the show. Can I call you Clement? Yes, please call me Clement, Sam. Thanks for having awesome. me in your show. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Clement, can you tell us about how you started to get into trading and investing? This is a, actually a very simple question, but it comes with a very, very complex answer. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it. My investing started way back in when I was in a university and I went through a major transformation. And that was the period of time I sat down and then asked myself, what do I want to do with my life? And, you know, I've, I've always been an underdog because I came from a very, very popular and top school in Singapore. But unfortunately, in the class, I'm always like the bottom. <laughs> so the bottom of the best. Asking, <laughs> yeah, I was asking myself, like, how do I find a niche when my peers are all doing so well? Let me tell you how well they've done, all right, Sam? One of my peers right now is a minister in the Singapore government. And one of my senior is also a full-fledged minister in the Singapore government. So I'm surrounded by very brilliant folks. And because of that, you know, I developed a sense where I need to find a place where I can stand out and contribute to this little world that we live in. So when I was an undergrad in a university, I made a promise to myself. I say, perhaps the only way I can really stand out from everyone else is if I become a millionaire. And then, then that, that thought got planted in my mind. So I say, okay. And you know, young, fast and furious, I just wrote it down. Okay, I want to become a millionaire by the age of 30 years old. So I just wrote that down first. And there started the whole search for what will make me become a millionaire. And I look around at all the different tools, different business, different industries I can participate in. But one thing really caught my passion and my utmost attention was this, the Chicago Board Option Exchange. They have just launched like, you know, options trading. And at that point in time, the options trading was backed by Black Show's formula. And Black Show's formula won the Nobel Prize. Can you believe that? I say, wow, you have <laughs> an did. instrument that can help me make money. At the same time, this instrument won a Nobel Prize. I love knowledge and I love wisdom. Thereby started my foray into options trading. And because of that, that transformed my life completely. I've been doing that over the last 20 years, Sam. <laughs> you mentioned Black Scholes formula. Yes. For everybody who's not aware with the technical details, it's, it's a quite a complex formula. When you want to demonstrate that, you need to go through lots of physics, heat equation, etc. What, what did you study at university? Were you a math guy, a physician, a business guy? I was in the Faculty of Engineering and in our university, there are three faculties for engineering, electrical engineering, mechanical or civil and structural engineering. So I came from the smallest faculty, which is the civil and structural engineering. We built roads, <laughs> we built buildings, <laughs> construction primary, right? And going back to Black Show's formula, this is like the pricing formula that's designed by Mr. Black and Mr. Show's, of which the entire Chicago Board Option Exchange was built upon based on this pricing formula. And because of my engineering background, instantly I fell in love with it. I say, wow, this will challenge my mind relentlessly and such a powerful instrument because it has a leverage of 10 times of the profits compared to what you play in the stock market. Options give you 10 times the profits. And the best part of it all, the risk 
remains the same compared to what you invest in stocks. Because in the event if a company goes bankrupt, your stocks or your options position will go to zero. But in if the event the right. company does well, for a 10% movement of the stock price, your options, you can get 10 times more of that, around 100% movement. So that's really the beauty of uh, options trading. <laughs> so when most people start trading and looking at the stocks and buying the stocks outright, you took a very different path. You started right away trading options, which is the most complicated instrument to trade. And I think that really caught hold of my attention. I believe looking back, if I started with trading stocks, I wouldn't have lasted 20 years in, the, in this journey. What got me excited about options trading is because there are 58 different, what we call options trading strategies. I call it the three S's. Spreads, straddle, and strangle, covered call, iron condo, butterfly. I mean, they came up with all kinds of sexy names, right? Mm. <laughs> and I told myself, every single strategy that's taught by the exchange, I'm going to put in real money, get my emotions involved so that I can dive really deep to understand each specific strategy on its own. And that's exactly what I did. I started with five solid years of uh, options trading background and never looked back because it opened up my mind that there were so many different permutations of looking at an investment position. So give you an example, Sam, a case in point. If you deploy options, you believe the stock price is going to go up, so naturally, we'll buy a straight call. So if the price goes up, a straight call gives you 10 times the profit of what you buy for the same amount of money into stocks. But the challenge is this. What if the stock price decides to go down? Now, this is where the beauty of options kick in. Options allow you to salvage a losing position, get out in style, and still make money. <laughs> the, the beauty of options is you can take very two simple instruments like a call and a put, and then you can combine them and do any linear combination of it and create so many different strategies. Yes, this is theoretically correct, but because of the time when I first started, that was in the year 2000. Back then, the commission fees for options trading were absurd. It's like $2 per contract, $3 per contract. We were paying a lot of money to the options brokerage houses. They were making so much money <laughs> because they, they just <laughs> started and they wanted to milk the whole market. They charged us a premium for the commission fees. As a result, if we want to play on the synthetics, comparing deploying calls and puts at the same time, we will still lose because of the high commission fees that we pay to the brokerage houses. During these five years as option trader, were you employed by an investment firm or were you playing with your own money? Uh, I was not employed by any investment firm. I was investing with my own money. And what really got me excited, the back were the time, those were the times, let me give you, uh, maybe some of your, your, your listeners may not even know about a product called the iPod. That was the time when iPod got really, really <laughs> hot by Apple. And that was the season where we saw the whole transformation of Steve Jobs coming back to Apple, launched iPod, and came up with many series of that. Then there was a rumor that potentially they're going to launch a phone. And subsequently, they did launch an iPhone, and that took the market by storm. I was in that generation. <laughs> <laughs> So you played with your own capital and you started that when you were a student or after getting your PhD? I started off as a student and back then the capital I had was a very, very small. That means all through my life, my life savings, US $10,000. And I started with that. And of course, after I graduated, you know, I launched my own business. And as an entrepreneur, this is something I want to encourage everyone to do so even as we take on the role of an entrepreneur, I still stay invested in the market. Because I went into the market with a single objective. I want to learn about all the great companies that are publicly listed in the US market. And all of us know that US market has a very high barrier of entry for a private company to be publicly sold in the US NASDAQ or NYSE. So every single publicly listed company in the US market, they are actually the role model for the respective industries, be it aerospace, pharmaceutical, tech, retail. They are always the number one. And so I take those insights as I'm investing 
and apply in my business, in my business domain. And I realized, wow, in terms of branding, in terms of their strategy, in terms of how they became a Trojan horse to bigger companies, like the case of Google, who is a Trojan horse for Yahoo. And eventually today, Google is much bigger than Yahoo. This is everything that we learn in the market. You know, uh, Clement, you're an exception because to <laughs> most people, and especially those who are beginners and at the start of their financial literacy, I recommend them invest and don't trade. But I know we discussed that before, and I'd like to know, how do you define trading versus investing? Oh, that's a great question, Sam. You know, at first, we all of us wanted to start off as a great investor because we are very much influenced. Like for myself, I'm very much influenced by Warren Buffett and his teacher, Benjamin Graham. And he started with value investing, telling us buy, hold and don't sell. That concept sounded really, really nice until you become a practitioner of it you realize that, oh my gosh, this is taking too long. <laughs> <laughs> I got bills to pay. I, I need to buy a car. I need to date a girl. <laughs> this, is, this is taking too long. I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, let's wait one year to make 10%. Hmm, sounds like a great idea. But no, <laughs> young, fast and furious, just like the millennials of today, they are not patient enough for that. And I was in that generation, because I started off with a game plan, Sam. My game plan, even before I started investing, was this. I wanted to become a millionaire. And very specific with the time frame, before 30 years old. I, I just wrote that the down. millionaire at 30, starting with 10K, did you reverse engineer what should be your annualized profit rate to reach your goal? No, I, I didn't reverse engineer anything. The only thing that I believe in back then was very much influenced by my teacher, Tony Robbins. And he had this book called Unlimited Power. Most of the people right now in this current generation probably never heard of that book already. That to me is my classic. Think and Grow Rich, Unlimited Power. And he opened up my mind to believe that anything that we can imagine and believe in, we can achieve. So I started off from there. Not putting into any equations in front of me, not putting in any assumption. I just wrote that down. I want to become a millionaire. <laughs> Fearless, right? <laughs> and as life presents itself, you know, I was able to combine investing, running my business, and start making money from different pots, different streams. And that's where money come in. And I want to accelerate that growth even much faster. So from the money I make from my business, I put into the stock market. There you go. So I keep repeating this process and I realized that, wow, the only way to accelerate, and you ask a great question between a trader and an investor is this, how fast can you get to the top of the wealth management pyramid? I want to share this concept about the wealth management pyramid because this is defined by the top banks in the world. You know, they basically classify the entire world's population who is at the top of the pyramid. And let me give you the hard facts about the statistics. Of the global population today of, I mean, every human being on planet Earth, there's only 1%, in fact, less than 1% of them defined as a millionaire, having US $1 million or more cash in bank. That is is, it, is it how you define millionaire? Is it cash in bank or is it a net asset? Cash in bank. Because some of the assets is like, you have a house, but you owe the bank mortgage. <laughs> You're not yeah. really cash Net rich. asset, you, you deduct all the debt and liabilities. Yeah. So as a result, thereby, I have a clarity on the concept between investing and trading. The concept is clearly defined. Today, if you are at the top of the pyramid, you are already a millionaire. Then jolly well, you can say to yourself, okay, I take a slower pace, I shall become a long-term investor. You can take your time because you've already been there, done that, reached the top. But if you are at the bottom of the pyramid and you tell yourself, okay, I'm going to take my own sweet time. Let me tell you, you can't get up there. <laughs> You're going to find ways much faster to accelerate, to get up to the top as soon as possible. Then finally, you take a little tap on your shoulder and say, okay, I can take a little slower pace right now because the accumulated experience and wisdom of reaching the top allows you to preserve your wealth. That's the difference between investing versus 
trading. You need to trade as soon as possible to get to the top. Then when you're at the top, you have the accumulated experience and wisdom to start doing your long-term investing to preserve your capital. So for example, we know of all the famous billionaires on planet Earth. Examples like uh, Warren Buffett, Carl Icahn, Ray Dalios, James Simmons, Nick Schumer, Bill Ackman, and all these are big names. But have we ever heard of a fact that a billionaire like Carl Icahn is up there today on the first year, but on the second year from billionaire status, he, he dropped down and became a millionaire. And on the third year, he became a pauper. <laughs> we don't hear stories like that. Once he's up there, he's always there. How come year in, year out, we're just hearing, hearing story? Of, oh, that billionaire, he's always a billionaire. Because they found a way to stick at the top. This is the game plan. Get up there as soon as possible. I like what you say because I used to say something quite counterintuitive and even controversial. I say to people, look, if you're poor, you have no choice but to invest because that's your only way out. A lot of people believe that investing is something for the rich. But no, if you're rich, it doesn't matter. If you have one million sitting in the bank, whether it grows or doesn't grow, you still have one million. You're not stressed about money. But if you're poor and if you want to get out of this situation and build your financial freedom, then it is an imperative for you to start investing. You are absolutely spot on on that, Sam. The ordinary man out there, the poor guy out there, he must start investing to break the income ceiling because he can continue to do whatever he's doing. He cannot have a breakthrough on the income ceiling unless he allows the concept of money to grow money, money to compound money. That is the whole idea between trading and investing. Essentially, accelerating the growth of your money in the shortest time possible. One of the problems of the nowadays economy is the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And only a fraction of common people actually have realized that money makes money. And the money that money makes, makes money. It's called like the compounded profit. Albert Einstein used to call it the eighth wonder of the world. I think he was right. Yes. But the problem is so many people are are really finding that daunting, like starting to invest, I might lose money, it's risky, and they don't want to take risk. They have worked very hard to earn and save their money. How do you perceive that? Do you believe that, for example, investing is the risky decision? I see that in our current generation, as in this generation right now as we are speaking, there is a major shift. Every ordinary man right now is able to jump into what I call a decentralized finance. And what do I mean by that? They realize that if they continue to clamor after US dollars, they probably have no chance to break the income ceiling because exactly what you said, the rich becomes richer holding US dollars. But Doing here's nothing. the breakthrough. <laughs> they discover that, holy moly, there's this thing called cryptocurrency. <laughs> And today, there's like 700 million people worldwide that's involved into Bitcoin. And Bitcoin has empowered the ordinary man. Suddenly, there's a whole bunch of them became wealthy overnight. And this is the major shift. That's the reason why this bet about the next 10 years, who's going to dominate the market. And very clearly, this generation has seen it with their own eyes. Cryptocurrency, blockchain, a decentralized finance where everyone got a chance to get to the top. And perhaps that explains in the past few years why the rich guys will condemn Bitcoin, will condemn cryptocurrency, because they don't want the poor guy to become richer than them. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the paradox. <laughs> There's a generational wealth gap, just like you described, our parents used to have a better standard of living. Our parents used to have a job and being able to afford a house, being able by saving a reasonable amount, let's say 20% of their income, to eventually buy a house in their 30s. Nowadays, if you're 30 years old, you can try to save 20% of your income and buy in Singapore, London, New York, in any big city. It's just impossible. The barrier, the entry to barrier to access ownership and for 99% of people, the house is the biggest asset people would ever have, has just become inaccessible unless you have rich parents. 
And what happens is a lot of people, since they can't see that tangible objective of buying a house, they just fall into the desperation of like spending everything anyway. There's no future. There's no point in saving. There's no point in investing. But there's this shift, just like you described, of people who are trying to bridge that generational wealth gap by going on crypto. And they say, well, look, I can't save to buy a house. It doesn't work anymore. Let me screw the system. Exactly. And and you said it so well. They live for the moment. This new... I mean, many a times we call it the millennial generation or the Gen Z. They truly live for the moment. Because like what you said and identified, they gave up the fact that, oh my gosh, the, the ceiling is so hard to break through. Why don't I just enjoy life for the moment? And perhaps that's the breakthrough that they have. They are able to travel into different remote cities and work remotely. They are able to get away from the traditional notion that you must own a house. That's why Airbnb is doing so well. (laughs) They can just rent through their whole life and not incur any substantial debt with the banks. And that's the breakthrough. And because of this whole generational breakthrough, they are looking at things completely different. So I met this guy. He's known as the guy called the Bitcoin Jesus. And his name is called Roger Ver. And it's kind of an interesting guy because, you know, he was convicted in the U.S., went to jail, and then he renounced his U.S. citizenship. And then he went to live another part of the country, and he spent some time in Japan. And while he was in Japan, hanging out at a cafe, he heard that everybody around him is just talking about Bitcoin. And you know what he did? He <laughs> bought the domain name, Bitcoin.com. And it was available. <laughs> This is the guy. <laughs> yeah, he was available. But everybody's talking about Bitcoin not buying the domain name. He bought it. Today, he's the proud owner of Bitcoin Cash. That's Roger Ver. For someone rejected by society, for someone who rejected his own country, he got a breakthrough. He's not held back by traditions anymore. And that perhaps explains his current success. Would you recommend Gen Z and millennial nowadays to buy or trade the cryptocurrencies? I would absolutely do that, Sam. Uh, the reason why is this. I've been very plugged into the blockchain community and more importantly, the Bitcoin community. And this is what I see. In our current generation, there are three important points for us to consider. Number one, there's not another company or a product or service that can capture a trillion dollar market cap in just 12 years. And who is this guy I'm talking about? That's Bitcoin. Bitcoin has demonstrated that it's able to win the hearts and minds and monies of so many people. And traditional companies like Amazon, Apple, they are taking like double, triple the amount of time to get to the trillion dollar market cap. That's point Number one. Point number two, if we ask ourselves what would dominate the world 10 years from now, then very clearly, you know, everyone wants to have a fair chance, a transparent chance, an equal opportunity. And this is what blockchain is all about. Blockchain is about trust. A doesn't trust B, B doesn't trust A. You need a bridge between them. Welcome to the world of blockchain. Blockchain establishes the trust. So moving forward, we know 10 years from now, things will be run by blockchain. Then the third concept is, how about the concept of the traditional money that we hold in our hands and keep in our wallets? Nope. 10 years from now, nobody will be touching dollar notes anymore. Because the future that we see is a future of digital currency. And on this note, China is taking the first step My belief and my calculation is that by next year, China will have fully deployed its Chinese digital yuan currency. In fact, if you visited China, you realize that they don't pay by the dollar notes anymore. They already have Weibo and uh, all the electronic payments by Alibaba. And for China to go into the next level of launching its own legal tender digital yuan is just a normal step in, in time. So they are very far-sighted as a country to identify this small window of opportunity and they want to be the first to launch it. And they will capture the market very fast. 
So, if you sum up these three points and think 10 years from now, how can our current generation have an equal chance to be great, to perhaps own something that they don't believe in the past they, they could own, then perhaps that is the future we are looking at, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea, but at the same time, I see that there are a lot of cryptocurrencies. It just sounds like that anybody can create on the fly now a new cryptocurrency and, and create the, like a new token out of the blue and randomly assign a value even if it's not used in practice. So what do you think about the, all these currency and their current price? And that's a great question. That is a great question because it allows us to highlight on the importance of the concept, what we call limited supply. In fact, of all the coins out there, there's only one guy with a limited supply of coins. And that's Bitcoin. 21 million coins, that's it. But I can't say that for any other coins because they can just keep <laughs> launching and minting new coins. So the supply keeps getting unlimited, unlimited, unlimited. So we are at, really right now, the tip of the iceberg, just at the beginning. So to kickstart this whole journey of the concept of cryptocurrency, for us right now, we only focus on one, the first guy, and that is Bitcoin. Now, there are three concepts behind it. Some of them look at it as a currency that you can buy and pay for items. Some of them look at it as a store value. Some of them look at it as an inefficient blockchain. Depends on who you ask and who you talk to. Everybody got their own different versions. But what stands out the most? Bitcoin is 100% decentralized. No government, no companies, no individuals can take charge of it. Number two, because of its limited supply at 21 million, thereby as education, as more and more people catch on the idea of cryptocurrency, demand goes up, supply remains the same, then you have a chance of what we call a pricing to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> and then the third concept, if you put all this together in the future, then who will become the de facto, the de facto goal of the new century? And that's the reason why many people equate Bitcoin as the digital goal. Why it's been even talked about as a goal? Because, for example, Singapore is a very young country. We, we got our independence in 1965. And in the first three years of our independence, you know, back then our country leaders, our forefathers, they went to Switzerland to buy gold for one single purpose, to hedge against the new currency called the Singapore dollar. So that's how gold was started in the history to hedge against to, or to stabilize against a national currency. Now, if you take this concept fast forward to this year right now, 2021, then you begin to see telltale signs of governments of the world going after Bitcoin. Number one, US. FBI has found a way to confiscate Bitcoins for what they call illegal activities or whatever not. Now, they have to commit so much resources just to confiscate Bitcoin, it means that there's a value behind Bitcoin. Please say yes. <laughs> <laughs> and last year, November, they started this campaign to confiscate Bitcoin in the US government. Six weeks later, in fact, I got the numbers right. They confiscated $1 billion worth of Bitcoin in uh, November last year. Six weeks later, to be exact, the Chinese government also confiscated Bitcoin in China. Four times more, four billion. <laughs> now, you tell me this thing is worthless, why would the government go after it? Unless it is valuable. Look at the price of Bitcoin today compared to last year, November. And that is the first telltale sign governments of the world right now begin to show up their holdings of Bitcoin. They know that this is a limited supply asset and they need to hold it so that they have an advantage Second telltale signs. You know, Sam, we are the specialists in uh, Wall Street for insider trading. And we track all the insiders, the billionaires, the millionaires, the sovereign wealth funds. And what, to us, one of the clearest telltale signs is that among the Wall Street top money managers, if one or two of them start to get into Bitcoin, the rest will follow. They behave like a school of wills. 
And the first gentleman on Wall Street is actually Paul Tudor Jones. He committed 2% of his asset under management to buy up Bitcoin last year on the same day as me, 12th of May. On the third halving event, he bought 2% with 2% of his asset under management. He's the first official Wall Street guy. Second official Wall Street guy is the CEO of a public listed company. And that's the CEO of MicroStrategy. His name is called Michael Saylor. He has bought up $2.5 billion worth of Bitcoin with the cash in his company's bank. They call it treasury. That's the second telltale sign. Third telltale sign, look at Square, look at PayPal, all these big money companies. They have also stored up Bitcoin because there's a big market. And officially, as of today, one of the largest brokerage houses in the world, the one I've been using for the last 20 years, Interactive Brokers, they've announced that they'll be offering cryptocurrency trading on their platform within the next few months. Wow. <laughs> if you connect all this together, you realize that, hey, the big boys are into the game. And for the small boys, you have a very small opportunity right now. <laughs> The window gets smaller and smaller by the day. <laughs> Can I play the contrarian? Yes, please, Sam. <laughs> awesome. So I think a lot of people are adopting Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies because they're surfing on the wave of the adoption. Like the, It's 100% clear that the adoption is just going up and up. And I think a lot of these companies, they're allowing to pay by Bitcoin, etc. because they just take such high fees. Like look at a Visa and MasterCard. When you want to pay by Bitcoin, it's possible. But look at the fees they would take. And second, we all know the story of the pizza Bitcoin. The guy yes. who <laughs> one day paid his pizza in Bitcoin because he had no money at the time. And now his pizza costs him, I don't know how many millions of dollars. So who would pay in Bitcoin today, given that everybody dreams of the Bitcoin going to the moon? So that's a great question. It's a question of who is able to withstand the pressures of fear and greed. Most people are buying up Bitcoin, not because they want to use Bitcoin to buy a Tesla. By the way, Tesla has just denounced Bitcoin. <laughs> in the month of February, they accepted Bitcoin. Three months later, they fell out of love with Bitcoin. Now... People are not going to go buy Bitcoin because they can use Bitcoin to buy something else. They're going to keep it as a store of value. Just like keeping a party Philip watch in your family, you're holding on only for the next generation. Just like, you know, the mothers passing jewelry to the daughters. Bitcoin is like this right now. It's a family heirloom that you want to keep passing on because the value keeps going up. I think there's a difference in the gold and Bitcoin in terms of store of value. So typically, gold or portfolio managers, they have gold because it's a diversification. When the stocks go up, gold goes down. And when the stocks are crashing, then the gold go up. So technically, it's called anti-correlation. And um, historically, whenever there's a war and there's instability, gold is always here to bring stability as a constant store of value. However, nowadays, if we have like a global problem, like all our servers are hacked or there's like an electromagnetism tempest that is just breaking our hard drive, then we can't use Bitcoin anymore. I don't think it has the same level of store of value that would remain here and constant no matter what's going on in our world. Let me give you the paradox to that. <laughs> <laughs> it is still used as a store of value for the people to move their money really fast. Case in point, you know, last year or the year before last, there was an incident whereby Iran shot down one of the drones by the US military. And then they were celebrating, wow, we managed to shoot down the drones from the US mighty army. And then Donald Trump was the president. The whole world was waiting for Donald Trump to launch an airstrike to take revenge. You know what happened during the period? Bitcoin spike up because the Iranians were waiting for the US to bomb. And they say, the only way I can run away with my money, let me convert all my cash to buy Bitcoin. 
So it is still a store of value, but the movement can be transnational. It can be very fast. And but in times of war, we cannot be carrying gold bars of gold with us. <laughs> we got to carry something much lighter. <laughs> That's another perspective, Sam. As a store of value, so you, uh, we talked about Tesla accepting Bitcoins and Bitcoin being adopted by companies. So it's treasury management. So for everybody, treasury management means company needs to have cash and to hold their operations between what they need to pay, what they receive from their suppliers and make sure that they have enough cash in the bank to execute all these transactions. And they also receive revenues in many different currencies. They receive in dollar, in euro, in pound, in yen, etc. So they need to manage all these currencies. And one of the challenge in treasury management is the revenue come in certain currency, but the costs are not necessarily aligned. So for example, you might hire people in India, in China, pay them in renminbi, but your revenues are in dollars. And one of the challenges that Bitcoin has in treasury management is it's very volatile. So let's imagine that tomorrow we will have revenues in Bitcoin, but most employees are still paid in US dollars and in euros and yen. And they won't accept tomorrow to be paid in Bitcoin because the rent is still denominated in national currencies. So it creates this FX exposure, the exposure to the exchange rate between the Bitcoin and the dollar. So let's say, a Tesla is sold when Bitcoin was like super high and then it just crashed. But you still have to pay all your rent and employees in dollars. So it creates a huge problem. Do, do you see that as a practical use for Bitcoin in treasury? And this, this is a great question because what you have just identified, Sam, is what we call teething issues. You will always have these teething issues at the very beginning the infancy stage of a grid development. So of course, we know that the price has not stabilized. It's not like traveling on a 45 degrees flight path up, up and away. It has its big volatility moving up, moving down. So it is for the company that to decide, do I want to include Bitcoin into my treasury? So let's case in point, let's look at micro strategy. It started off as a tech company the largest shareholder is Blackstone, uh, BlackRock, sorry. <laughs> and Tamasi is also indirectly involved in microstrategy because Tamasi is a shareholder of BlackRock. So I look at the relationship that way. So the day when Michael Saylor announced that, okay, I'm going to take my cash in bank to buy up Bitcoin, he rocked the entire Wall Street. We said, wow, that's a new way of thinking about cash in bank and we're going to keep Bitcoin as one of our treasuries. He did that and he went beyond that. He went to the market to raise another billion just to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> As we heard right now, he's going to raise another half a billion to buy more Bitcoin. Now, his objective is very different, clearly different from traditional companies. Traditional companies are dealing with foreign exchange. Like I sit on one of the board of a public company. We are doing business across Asia. We collect Malaysia ringgit, Indonesia currency, Thai baht, Singapore currency, Japanese yen, Hong Kong dollars, and so on. But those currencies are pretty stable in the sense within the basket. And Sam, you raise a great question, but if you start to accept Bitcoin, today is 30,000, tomorrow is 3,000, how are you going to manage <laughs> that? Then you need to back it up with a strategy why you are accepting Bitcoin. So I'm going to reference back again, back to MicroStrategy. They are doing this because they are pivoting their business. Today, they position themselves as the number one force to back up Bitcoin. So they are going to Bitcoin analytics, going to Bitcoin data management, escrow management. They are even speaking to 10,000 of the top money managers in the world, asking them to allocate 1% or 2% of their asset under management to buy up Bitcoin. He has a game plan. That's why it works for him. So the question to the companies today is, are you accepting Bitcoin just because you want to be part of this current fashion trend? Then you are in the wrong space. But if you are doing it for a very clear strategy that will increase not just the value of Bitcoin itself, it will also increase the value of your stock price. And that's exactly what happened to MicroStrategy. It's a double win. In fact, I call it a triple win. Why? Because Michael Saylor bought Bitcoin first using his own cash. 
before he informed the company to use the company's cash to buy more Bitcoin. <laughs> so that is a triple win for him. You know, I used to have Bitcoins. I bought them back in the days in 2017. So I was not the first, but I was not the last one. The problem that I saw is what happened if there is a fork. And you know, anytime there have been like Bitcoin fork, anytime somebody can say, okay, we're going to fork this blockchain. We're going to make it a, a more efficient one where transactions are going to be cheaper and faster. And we're going to have deals with central banks or the big tech companies or the big payment company. And this one will be adopted. How do you hedge such a long tail risk? This has already happened, Sam. Look at Bitcoin Cash. It was spin out of Bitcoin. Bitcoin Cash was a fork, but it was a failed fork. It wasn't adopted. I'm talking about like a fork, but that fork would be the one adopted. So I raised up Bitcoin Cash because the core team behind, they were actually the core supporters of Bitcoin at the beginning. They got frustrated with the speed. They wanted to make radical changes to Bitcoin. Everyone, Everybody voted against it. And that's the birth of Bitcoin Cash. They got frustrated with the current Bitcoin. Then Sam, you introduced a new, another idea about fogging, fog from the existing Bitcoin blockchain. That is a possibility. We don't deny it. But look at where it is right now. Is it even possible to begin with when you have 700 million supporters? Nobody wants to change anything. Everybody wants the status quo. And everybody wants to see the moon. <laughs> 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 I think that's the central piece. And that is why it could reach a trillion dollar market cap in 12 years. For that reason, it has substantial people's power backing it. That no single man, no single organization, no single government can change its destiny. Clement, you're a professional trader. You have been there, you're a veteran. And I'm sure you know as well as much as I do, if not better, than the markets are full of manipulations. <laughs> And I've seen so much market manipulations, especially on the small cryptos. I've seen some shit coins back in 2017, some whale trades, some really ugly stuff. And unfortunately, the one who lose are often the everyday people, the, the millennial, the Gen Z, want to get out of poverty. And they're being exploited by a couple of manipulators who have a lot of capital to play because to manipulate the market, you need to put like the big boards, you need to put like a huge amount of money. Mm. How do you see that from your perspective? Actually, this has been happening for hundreds of years. It's not unique to 2017. It's not unique to 2021. Look at what's happening this year. The meme stocks, GameStop, mm. And uh, AMC, I call it AMC theater because it's just a cinema. <laughs> <laughs> and, re and the re latest one, Wendy restaurant. I'm like, oh my God, that's my childhood restaurant. <laughs> there is no fundamental behind it. There's no valuation. Even every analyst that doing coverage on these meme stocks, they gave up. They raised their white flag and said, surrender. <laughs> I'm not going to do coverage on these com companies anymore because they just want to prove a point. We call the Reddit community... They just want to shame Wall Street for whatever reason. But you're right. Behind the scene, there are manipulators. There are whales. There are powerful insiders who are stoking up all this fervor among the ordinary men. But these ordinary men don't live to make money. They live to be part of a movement. That's what we see right now. We can't explain through science anymore. Because look at all these three companies doesn't make sense at all for the price that it shot up. So this is a challenge. A challenge of the fact that it seems like, Sam, perhaps a not so nice word is there are many willing suckers out there who are willing to be scammed. And as a result, you are right. There are many coins out there, took all the money by the big players, the ordinary folks suffer, but they continue to believe in it. That's something I can't explain. <laughs> <laughs> the loser continued to lose until he's, he lost everything he's still losing <laughs> so maybe we can go back to hundreds of years of history to determine this phenomena back in the good old days of the tulip it went, it, the price shot up but it's just a game so is it a case of willing buyers winning sellers is it a case of musical chess is it a case of David versus Goliath 
something for us to think about. But what I can say is this. Today, if you are investing your money, you must be able to connect your own dots and live by your investment thesis. Then you will not be swayed by the people around you. And that's perhaps the reason why I could sustain for 20 years investing in the market. Because I always push myself to find the ultimate reason. Why am I putting money into this guy? Can I explain it to my children? Can I sleep well at night? If the answer is yes, go for it. You're a true veteran. And the first Bitcoin cryptocurrency adopters, they knew what they were doing. They knew it was very risky. They knew it was early. They knew the tech because at the time only like the geeks knew about Bitcoins. The problem that I have is nowadays, I hear people from the taxi driver and the bus drivers, oh, I'm going to invest <laughs> in Bitcoin. And you know, there's a say, when your taxi drivers tell you that he's going to invest in that, then you should exit the position. Uh, you shouldn't exit too early. <laughs> <laughs> too late for me? Not all the taxi drivers <laughs> bought Bitcoin yet. <laughs> but many people, they, they wanted to follow the trend. They see, it, oh, it's going to the moon, Bitcoin to 100k, Bitcoin to 1 million. Elon Musk is buying Bitcoin, now Dogecoin. And they bought at the top and then they lose. So how to prevent this situation? You know, I have to attribute it to this guy called Elon Musk. And it's very good that this week, you know, CNBC interviewed SEC chairman Gensler. And he says that he's going to go after this, this guys without naming anybody. And, you know, my, my belief is that if SEC wants to show his commitment to go after manipulators of the market, I think they should seriously consider Elon Musk <laughs> as a prime candidate. Three <laughs> things happen. And I want to draw your attention. The first thing happened was in, in February this year. Elon Musk announced that Tesla bought up $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin. And that came about, if we calculate the distance, he could only enter the market to buy Bitcoin between 1st of January to the first week of February. That's the date of his announcement. Because in 1st of January, he announced to the board that the company has approved his calling to buy into cryptocurrency. That filing was filed. So if we look at the distance from 1st January to his announcement date, we calculated his average price is probably $33,333. I call it the double tree and triple tree. Then when he announced Bitcoin was adopted as a form of payment for Tesla, on that single announcement, Bitcoin went up $10,000. I call it the Elon Musk candle, right? So that's the first dot we're going to connect. Very, very important. <laughs> New yes. generation of technical analysis. And from that moment onwards, he started talking about Dogecoin, which you, you brought up, Sam. He told everybody, oh, I'm going to do on Saturday Night Live, I'm going to talk about Dogecoin, I'm going to bring my mother, I'm going to bring this guy, that guy, everybody going to talk about Dogecoin. Price shot up. As he appears on Saturday Night Live, the price drops. Second example. Then finally, third example, he denounced Bitcoin recently. The candle drop again, I call it the Elon Musk second candle. $10,000 drop in one day, courtesy of Elon Musk. So tell me, who can manipulate the market that candle can move $10,000 in one day? I mean, this is the biggest influencer of the market right now. So we look at this whole chain of events and we say, something is not right here. How could a person as smart as Elon Musk change his mind within the span of three months? February to May. February, you love Bitcoin. May, you hate Bitcoin. Oh my God, there's something really strange going on here. And the best part is in the second Elon Musk candle, the day that Bitcoin dropped, three days later, China announced the ban of, of cryptocurrency. How coincidental. I mean, the dots cannot be clearer than that. <laughs> Our suspicion is he probably got... You're a data I, I, I guy. You he got tipped off by someone in the Chinese government. So he has to, you know, get out first. So if you look at the price of Bitcoin right now, dropped to 30,000, which is below his average price of double three, triple three. Our thesis is that he has probably sold off all his Bitcoin. Elon Musk is not holding any more Bitcoins despite whatever he's saying right now. We, we have our own thinking. We connect the dots because we believe a smart, him, a smart person like him would never allow his portfolio to enter into the Red Sea. 
Red Sea is for the ordinary people. <laughs> Red Sea... <laughs> Red Which Sea is not for like the richest man on planet Earth at one point in time. That's Elon Musk. So if you follow this trail of doors, then you decide for yourself, do you want to believe this man? Do you still believe that he's holding on to Bitcoin when he condemned Bitcoin? You know, something doesn't wire up at the top. You don't accept Bitcoin and you tell people you're holding Bitcoin, doesn't connect anymore. And when the price hit 30000 which was the lowest price from 1st January to the, the first Elon Musk candle, the lowest price was 30000 you begin to scratch your head and think, maybe he doesn't have Bitcoin anymore. And perhaps someone should go and talk to him. But the thing is, cryptocurrencies are on, it's not a regulated market. When I was working in the investment banking industry, everything was regulated. If you make an announcement, you have to be extremely careful which position do you take before, which position do you take after. You're subject to be investigated by the regulators at any time if you try like to manipulate the market. Because, you know, um, back in the days, hedge funds and analysts, what they would do, they would take position, they would, they would go on Bloomberg News, announce, oh yeah, look, we believe in this company, we believe like it's bullish, and then the market goes up and they sell and they make their profit. But all of that has been very regulated in the stock market. What can the SEC and what can regulators and what can people do on the crypto market? So there, Sam, you no brought rule. up the concept of front-running the stocks. You buy low first, go out there, wee wee, mm -hmm. <laughs> drive price up, and when the price goes up, exactly. you sell high, you front run the stocks, you make money. So this is, this is the typical behavior. But what we observe right now, I think the public is also running out of patience. How could someone that's already sanctioned by SEC, not allowed to tweet at his own will, every tweet has to be approved by the board, but life goes on. <laughs> Looks like some people are more privileged than the others. <laughs> so the public is waiting to see what action is going to happen because if you continue to have such behavior in the marketplace, then you're going to get a lot of people into trouble. And I believe that's the reason why Anonymous came out on YouTube to give a warning to Elon Musk. I think that's a serious warning because, yeah, so far in the past... You sent me the video, yes. Warning, it's a nasty one. <laughs> I think it's going viral at, at, on YouTube at the moment. Yeah, it's still at YouTube. People already stopped the video, spread everywhere. And and uh, as a result, I call this behavior by the anonymous is they have announced officially Elon Musk is public enemy number one. And that's why they are going after him. So we are out here talking about how to empower ordinary men, but the most powerful men are doing the opposite. <laughs> So that is why, why do you think he's doing that? He's already one of the richest person on earth. He owns three billion dollars company. He states that his mission was to save the planet, work on renewable, sustainable energy. My theory, it's only my theory. I think he did that to promote his business of Solar City and to develop sustainable energy with clean energy for cryptocurrency mining. Yes. You are pretty right and spot on on that because that was the thesis put up by Art Investment, Katie Woods as well. There's whole future right now revolving clean energy, using solar energy to mine Bitcoin. But I want to give you a, another perspective. For someone who built SpaceX, who built a great solar company and built the Boring Company and owned Tesla, if you look at the opposite figure of Elon Musk, I'm going to give you Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos right now is undisputed richest man on planet Earth. And guess what? Even he after his divorce. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's super huge. And after his divorce, he's still super huge. <laughs> and what he, did he announce this week? He's going to walk the talk. He's going to go to the moon with his brother. Have you ever heard any news about Elon Musk taking on SpaceX to fly to the Mars? <laughs> no, we don't hear that. So you have two very different unique personalities, someone who walked the talk or perhaps someone who wants to manipulate to promote his own company. But this is something everybody's scratching head. Then why does he promote Dogecoin? Nothing to do with him, right? So everyone is still scratching the head and perhaps there's some truth in what is said in the video by Anonymous.
Please go and watch it. And what if tomorrow Jeff Bezos promotes any other currency like Litecoin, EOS, anything? Would that make it a valuable currency? So when we look at coin market cap at the top 10 currencies, right? The other currency we are looking at is USDT. For us in the blockchain, in the crypto world, we need USDT to do our business with other blockchain partners. So that's like de facto, the so-called US dollar in the crypto space, USDT. Then going down the line, you have Ethereum. Now Ethereum is going out of whack because the gas fees right now is shot up so high, it's like everybody's just so cheesed off about it. <laughs> but Ethereum is still number two. It's one of those big four that's accepted in, by, by the traditional institutions. And then as you go down the rank, you have Binance Coin. Unfortunately, right now, they are under investigation by the Justice Department and by IRS. I believe the third agency will be coming after Binance as well, the Securities Exchange Commission. So each of them have their own unique challenges because right now we are still at infancy stage. Then perhaps we take our lenses at a higher level to look at the big picture. What else to play? Let me give you a few tips. Number one, the only guy that's legitimate at current day today that is Coinbase. The only guy approved by Securities Exchange Commission as a public company. So if you want to take advantage of that, Coinbase is a valuable stock, valuable option for you to take part. The second guy that you want to take part in, which all of us are waiting in uh, for the, like, the longest time, and that is the approval of the Bitcoin ETF. There's at least a dozen companies waiting for approval by SEC once that has been approved, it will completely legitimize Bitcoin itself. And we are talking about serious to the moon. Not just halfway to the moon. <laughs> it's all the way to the moon. Everybody is just waiting for this major signal. Third signal is this. We know that China is launching its digital yuan, but most people neglected the fact that the US has also started looking into the US digital dollar. And that is headed none other by Giancarlo, Christopher Giancarlo, ex-CFTC chairman. He's assembling six banks in the US right now to test pilot the digital US dollar. I think they're going to prepare that in the event China digital yuan takes off, the US will be the next country. And when you consider all this, we are missing one very important guy out of the entire equation that started the whole wave. And we totally forgotten about him. And I want to bring the focus back on this young man. His name is called Mark Zuckerberg. He's the one that actually started the whole phenomena about Libra dominating the world that freak out every government on planet Earth. <laughs> as, as a result, he was sidelined, kind of sidelined. But recently, he put up a Facebook post. Pretty interesting, a picture of two of his favorite goats. And you know what's the meaning of good? In our current generation, good actually stands for greatest of all time. That is the actual meaning of good, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. And he has a picture of two of his goats. And guess what he named them, Sam? One of them is called Max. The other one is called Bitcoin. <laughs> 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 so we are eagerly awaiting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite concerned if we one day will have our national currency on the blockchain. I think a lot of people don't realize that everything on the blockchain is public. The reason the FBI can catch criminals is because everything is absolutely public. It means if tomorrow you have a wallet and you go to pay for your coffee with that wallet, then it's public. You made that transaction. Everybody can see how much money you have on your wallet. What are all the transactions you bought? Where did you shop? Which website did you visit? Aren't you afraid that this is going to be just out of control if one day we have our currency controlled by the government and on the blockchain? On hindsight, Sam, we are already under control. <laughs> Whether we have blockchain to begin with, you know, all of us are getting monitored. I want to give you a classic example of a prime minister, a sitting prime minister in the government. You know, this is the case of Malaysia previous prime minister, Najib. Back then when he was the prime minister of Malaysia, you know, he lost a lot of money for the government because of his investment into 1MDB. 
But what happened is this. Fast forward, he was charged in court and they produced in court the private phone conversation of a sitting prime minister as evidence to the court. So can you imagine if you are the prime minister of a government that you're running right now and your phone call is being recorded? How could that be? It means that there is always a higher hand or a hidden hand. We are all being monitored, by the way. It's just whether are you important enough for them to expose you. (laughs) We're all monitored. But the difference is if we all spend money with a public blockchain, then we'll switch it from a system where the government can track everybody. I mean, the government plus the big tech companies to everybody can track everybody. If you tomorrow, you, you go to the groceries to buy some carrots and yogurt, by looking at your wallet and you, you making your Bitcoin transactions, the shopkeeper can know exactly everything about your life and everything that you have bought and earned and everything that you own. Then we have the separate two concepts already. Because right now, if you put it like this, the audience will get confused. Concept number one, if we are talking about a national sovereign digital currency, like the China Digital Yuan, that is private. Whatever you buy or sell, no one is going to see it on the public blockchain because it's a centralized digital currency. Now, the government will know, but not the public. That's why it can be an official legal tender digital currency. That's concept number one. Concept number two, if it's run by a private company instead of a government, and depends on the white paper, what is their vision? If their vision is that, hey, if you adopt my currency, everybody on the blockchain can see whether you visit the porno website or you go to the casino or you buy (laughs) tomatoes. Doesn't matter, right? So if there's sufficient people who believe in this ideal that everything is transparent and everybody adopted it, then you become massive. But end of the day, it is the masses that decide who they want to support. So we got to trust the wisdom of the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> so you see corrupt cryptocurrencies and blockchain as the ultimate shape of democracy. Yeah, I, I believe in that because if you use blockchain to conduct a free election... There's no chance anyone can play cheat. Any government that's avoiding that, probably they have their own reasons. They they have some reservations behind it. And everything moving forward, what we have learned from this pandemic is this. Pandemic has caused everybody to lock down at home and we can't have that past human connections where we can high-five, shake hands and give a hug. We lost that touch already, the human touch. And... If we lost the human touch today, moving forward to the future, how much more can we do to rebuild that trust? Then clearly you will see why blockchain will be in huge, huge demand because of what this generation has gone through of the current pandemic situation. As as a last recommendation, if the Bitcoin is today at, uh, how much is it? 30-something thousand dollars? Would you say it's time to buy or is it time to sell? <laughs> that's, a, that's a cheeky question. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on your time horizon. <laughs> I just shared with my community that there are three major price points that we need to monitor. The first one is the 30,000 to 40,000 range. It has been going through this rectangular channel for the past few weeks. And looks like it just can't break above 40,000 and it just can't break below 30,000. So as a result, we got three scenarios. Scenario number one, what Wall Street is expecting right now is for Bitcoin to crash below 30,000. And once that happens, we need to introduce a new word called capitulation, bloodshed <laughs> across the market. Because the moment it breaks below 30,000, the most nervous man on planet Earth, I believe, would be Michael Saylor. He has $2.5 billion invested into Bitcoin. His average price is 25250 He will not want to enter into a Red Sea. He will start selling. And when he starts selling, it will further crash below his price. 
So we have a position that is ready on standby at half of 25250. And that's exactly what we call 12,500. That's the first point. And it cannot drop below 12,500 because I traded on Bitcoin halving last year on the first day. Average price was between eight to $9,000. So those who traded with me, we are sitting on nice profits. And if it ever touches that eight to $9,000 range, there you go, you have a free fall. It will be called a black swan event. So that's scenario number one. Scenario number two, once it breaks above 40,000, we need a trigger event. Right, we've been talking about a trigger event just now. And what are the telltale signs of a trigger event that will allow Bitcoin to break above 40,000? Let me share with everybody. And that is we are all waiting for the Bitcoin ETF to get approved by the Securities Exchange Commission. That's scenario number two. And once that's approved, it will shoot all the way to 100,000. Scenario number three, it will continue to move sideways. In that 30,000, 40,000 range, and by the way, you can make money in this range as well. <laughs> it touches 30,000, you go and buy, and the guy will go back to 40,000, you sell. You still make your $10,000 per coin, right? But how long this will persist depends on how much more bad news Bitcoin can handle. It's just non-stop bad news after bad news after bad news, and we're just waiting for a silver lining. So those are my three price points for you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you very much for these three scenarios and sharing your 20 years of experience in trading and seeing all the ups and downs in the markets. Thank you for having me, Sam. I appreciate it. So, Clement, I hope to see you again for another talk. And uh, <laughs> we'll see how the Bitcoin would have reacted after your announcement. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you found this episode enjoyable, inspiring, and educational. In this era of instant gratification, it is more important than ever to train our delayed gratification muscle. So keep learning, keep improving by 1% every day. You may not see the results right now, but this is a secret of all the successful people I've met. Please help me spread financial education by sharing this podcast with your friends and community. I would love it if you could also leave us a review. It really helps the show. Now, I would like you to forget about all the advertising that is being pushed to us on a daily basis and think about your personal financial goals. What do you really want to achieve with your money? If you have financial objectives, then check out the Nova Money app. Nova is an AI that will show you how to set financial goals and how to achieve them. A plan is only useful if you can follow it. That's why Nova will send you daily motivational messages to give you the strength to ignore the daily temptations of spending money and stay focused on your goals. Like other budgeting apps, Nova connects all your bank accounts in one place to give you the full picture. The difference is that the Nova AI will do all the budgeting and tracking for you. The second difference is that unlike many free personal finance apps, we don't sell users data. All your data is encrypted and will remain completely private. Make sure that you're investing in your financial education. Make sure that you're building your financial freedom. And I'll speak to you in the next episode.